Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 90 on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Sinzi, Tabisolu Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... South Sudan rebels condemn the creation of 28 new states. International Criminal Court receives submission from South Africa. And the former UN General Assembly president faces corruption charges. In economics, South Africa's Reserve Bank governor says the economy will not go into recession. And in sports news, South Sudan to play their first World Cup qualifier today. But first up, the news with Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Lulu. Now looking at your news update, a spokesperson for Somalia's Islamic extremists says the rebels will fight the British troops that are to be deployed to the country as peacekeepers. Speaking on the group's radio on Tuesday, Sheikh Ali Mohammed said their fighters would welcome the British troops with bullets and drag beheaded British soldiers through the streets. His comments were in response to British Prime Minister David Cameron's pledge last month that as many as 70 British military personnel could be sent to Somalia to bolster a United Nations-backed mission to support the Somali government against the extremists. Authorities in Burkina Faso have formally charged the military officer who led a failed coup last month. General Gilbert Dindera led elite presidential guard soldiers that saw them take the country's president, prime minister and members of the transitional government hostage less than a month before elections. Some of the charges include crimes, threatening state security and murder. South Sudan President Salva Kiir's announcement to replace the country's 10 states with 28 new ones violates his government's commitment to fully implement a peace agreement signed last month. This is according to a joint statement issued by the United States, Britain and Norway. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. The Troika urged Kiir to defer the formation of the additional states until the transitional government of national unity is formed and a national constitutional dialogue takes place. Already, the rebel groups are led to former Vice President Dr. Riek Machal have protested the decision, terming it unilateral and against the spirit of the peace agreement. Meanwhile, medical charity Doctors Without Borders, MSF, has suspended its medical activities in the town of Lea following an attack on its facilities and personnel last weekend. South Sudan 
Sudan got independence from Sudan in 2011, but a political row between Kiel and his sacked deputy, Dr. Machar, led into an outbreak of a civil war in December 2013. A peace agreement was brokered last month, but there are increasing fears that it will not hold. The chairperson of SADC's Troika on Politics, Defense and Security, Mozambican President Philip Nyusi, has expressed confidence in the manner in which South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa is facilitating the challenges faced by Lesotho. Ramaphosa briefed the current sitting chairperson of, of the speaking through his Foreign Affairs Minister, Oldemiro Baloi. President Nyusi says the discussions unfolded in a fruitful manner dialogue was open, it was frank, and uh, the willingness to come out of this uh, difficult situation is fully shared for all the parties here. And uh, the facilitator was, uh, I mean, the the facilitator uh, saw all parties reiterating uh, their uh, confidence, their trust on him, and they will proceed. And finally, the African Union Commission Chairperson Dr. Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma has called for more organizations to continue playing a role in changing the lives of young people, this by giving them opportunities to further their studies. Tlamini Zuma was speaking at the 10th anniversary of DISO Foundation, an organization that funds and promotes educational and academic excellence. Tlamini Zuma also urged African countries to strengthen their political institutions to achieve their development. Goals. Yes, there's a lot to be done. We're behind the curve, but expectations for our future is positive. And I expect that our present and future leadership, that TISO is part of producing, are up to the task. South Africa is an integral part of this great continent, and therefore it is important that South Africa's private sector prioritizes the creation of partnerships across the continent in order to participate and benefit from the dynamic growth that is happening in our continent. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A top story, South Sudan rebels and opposition politicians have condemned President Salva Kiir's unilateral decision to create three new regions containing 28 new federal states in Africa's newest nation. The rebels and opposition politicians say the creation of the state is a violation of a peace agreement signed in August this year by President Kiir and his principal political and military opponent, Riek Machar. James Shimanyula has more. The unilateral creation of 28 new states in South Sudan has triggered a swift angry reaction from rebels and veteran opposition politicians. Since South Sudan gained independence on July 9th in 2011 to become Africa's 54th newest nation, it has remained with 10 states, Western Bahar El Ghazal, Northern Bahar El Ghazal, Warab, Lakes, Western Equatoria, Central Equatoria, Eastern Equatoria, Jonglei, Upper Nile, and Unity. 
the creation of the new state has created room for the dismantling of the 10 states and replacement of 28 states in the country's three new regions, Greater Equatoria, Greater Bahar El Ghazal, and Greater Upper Nile. The new Greater Equatoria region has eight federal states, Imatong, Namriyong, Maridi Amadi, Budwe, also known as Bodudwe, Juba, where the country's capital is located, Karakeka and Yei River. The new Greater Bahar El Ghazal region comprises 10 federal states, Wau, Awil, Lol, Awil East, Twik East, Gokriali East, Tronj, Eastern Lake, Western Lake, and Gok. Finally, the new Greater Upper Nile region has Northern Lich, Southern Lich, Rueng, Eastern Nile, Jonglei, Western Nile, Western BA, Eastern BA, Latijo, and Boma. Lawrence Corbandi, President Salva Kiir's legal advisor, emphasizes that the creation of the new state does not violate the peace agreement and South Sudan constitution. We have not yet violated our own constitution. It is actually a response to call of our citizens. A member of the constitution, we made some assessment. In Ecuador, there is an absolute, absolute call for federal system. In Baragazan, the same. In uh, Apanai, Bahar El Ghazal and Apanel that President Kiri's legal advisor is referring to were two of South Sudan's 10 states before the creation of 28 new federal states. Creating the new states, President Salva Kiri made it clear that at last the people of his country had got what they have always wanted, the expansion of the 10 states into 28 states. But Lama Kolo, leader of South Sudan People's Liberation Movement Democracy for Change, defines federalism in scholarly perspective. Federalism is not a number of states. Federalism is the power that is given to each state. So that does not mix apples with oranges. He should just annul his order. So he should just forget about it. It comes at a time when people are busy implementing uh, the peace agreement. It is a clear violation of the peace agreement. Because the peace agreement talks about 10 states. And it is on the basis of the 10 states that power was shared in the peace agreement. Therefore, for one side to come and change the situation is a violation of the agreement. So if the president wanted to change the boundaries of the states, the names of the states, their capitals, and their number, this according to Article 162 of the Constitution should have been done by the national legislature. He hasn't done that. Although the rebels led by Riek Machara have claimed that the creation of the new states violates the peace agreement signed by President Kiir and his political opponent in August this year, the country's information minister, Michael Weth argues as follows. 
The agreement says the governor of Upper Nile shall be from the SPLMAIO. If, the, if, the, if Upper Nile is divided into 10 states, that same provision will continue to apply on all the new states. The same thing with Unity State and the same thing with Double State. So I don't see anywhere whereby we can come and say, we say that the agreement has been violated. Instead, it has been enriched. There is no provision in the agreement which, which ties down the hands of the president not to continue to render services and serve the interests of his people. The president is acting in accordance with the provisions of the law, and there is no time frame which has been set in which the president will be taking whatever decision he wants. The president has decided to take it at this particular moment in good faith, in response to the will of the people. Isaac Natali, Secretary General of one of South Sudan's opposition parties, South Sudan Liberal Party, wonders where the government will get money to run the newly created state. With the situation that we are living with and right now, the budget of the country is not the budget of the country is not is not enough to fund all uh, mean all the political and all the effort that is being exerted on the ground to create a room for redevelopment. Now we have 18 more states, so I'm not sure exactly where the government, I mean the ruling party, is going to create the budget to fund all these activities. That was. Isaac Natali, Secretary General of one of South Sudan's opposition parties, South Sudan Liberal Party. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyola. The European Commission's Humanitarian Aid and Civil Protection Department, ECHO, has contributed just over two million U.S. dollars to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, in Sudan to help refugees and internally displaced people in Sudan, 60% of whom are children. The new funds will help to reduce deaths and illness linked to malnutrition by providing 100,000 children with life-saving care and raising awareness about its causes among the population in White Nile, Darfur and the eastern region. For more on this, Channel Africa's Selin Antobong spoke to Clement Kazai-Bon, a field expert for the European Commission's Humanitarian Aid and Civil Protection Department. The situation in Sudan is quite complicated. As you know, Sudan is a complicated, large-scale humanitarian crisis for years now. And malnutrition and wash sector are in great need of being highly supported by international donors and with specific activities implemented by local international agencies and UN services. In Sudan, you have several different key drivers for malnutrition aspect. You have, of course, uh, uh, many diarrhea, illness, uh, uh, lack or poor public uh, health services. We, of course, also still face some important uh, population displacements, uh, droughts that are uh, severely affecting the country, and a certain general underdevelopment for, uh, for certain areas. This donation will be peddled towards the most urgent humanitarian needs in Sudan. What are those needs currently? What is being considered through this duration is to tackle the prevalence of acute malnutrition in Sudan. You know that Sudan still has the, one of the most highest prevalence of acute malnutrition in the world with rates that are very important. Globally, uh, nationwide, we have uh, above 16% of global acute malnutrition amongst uh, children under five. And, of course, this phenomenon of malnutrition has remained rampant for the last 30 years. We are mainly considering the need 
needs in terms of water and, and sanitation, as this is a very uh, difficult situation that is being faced as by this population in the in the camps where they are uh, settled, mainly in White Nile. And uh, of course, we want to echo wants through UNICEF to improve, you know, the the, the coverage of proper sanitation, of uh, proper uh, of proper water access to for this population. From your engagement with UNICEF, what seems to be a challenge or long-standing challenges, rather, in providing humanitarian aid on the ground in Sudan? There are several uh, challenges linked to malnutrition. You know that Sudan has uh, above 2 million uh, children that are stunted, 2 million that are uh, in need of uh, treatment for, uh, for acute malnutrition. And uh, of those 2 million, you have 500,000 that are in need of immediate treatment for severe acute malnutrition. So it, this is a very Im- important figure. There are various challenges to be, uh, to be considered here in, in, in Sudan for this uh, malnutrition response. Uh, I, I would say that first, even if some important progress is, has been made for the past uh, five years, uh, the country has, for example, uh, decided and, and voted uh, uh, an official uh, malnutrition tackling plan since 2010. There is also a plan for community management of malnutrition. There is a plan for community sensitization to tackle malnutrition. So there, there, there have been some important progresses, but we still have this very persistent high prevalence of malnutrition. So the challenges we are facing, of course, is first, I would say, to, to try to scale up the community management of acute malnutrition. There are geographical constraints and uh, logistic uh, issues. Funds have not really been forthcoming. From your analysis, would you say there is some kind of donor fatigue in Sudan? I would not maybe talk of a donor fatigue in in, in Sudan. I I, I would say that, you know, after uh, uh, many years of of crisis, and I would link this to new crisis, and there are some uh, very important needs that have been appearing in in certain environments in the past uh, two, three, or four years, and I'm referring, for example, to to Iraq and and Syria uh, crisis. I am referring to the the, the very important crisis right now uh, faced by uh, South Sudan. Uh, I would say that above this donor fatigue that can can be considered that uh, at some point there are also very important other needs uh, worldwide right now. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41-meter band, band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. And that was Clement Kazaubon, field expert for the European Commission's humanitarian branch ECHO, on the line from Khartoum, speaking to Selina Dobo. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi.
My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I The International Criminal Court, the ICC, says it has received a submission for a time extension from South African authorities to explain their side of the story in the Omar al-Bashir debacle. The ICC indicted the Sudanese president for war crimes and crimes against humanity, and he was not handed over by South African authorities when he attended an AU summit in Johannesburg, causing the Hague-based court to demand clarification. Jack Parrock reports. The International Criminal Court says it will review the submission but not speculate on a decision about whether to grant South Africa a time extension until it's made. Fadiel Abdullah is the ICC spokesman. The uh, South African government indicated that there is still an ongoing process on the national uh, level uh, to determine the circumstances related to this visit of Mr. al-Bashir and uh, based on that requested uh, additional time from the ICC Uh, in order to complete first this national level and then provide the information to the court. Uh, This is what has been uh, submitted by the government. Uh, Now, of course, it would be for the IC judges to decide whether or not to grant this extension of time and until when. The ICC insists the most important thing is getting the Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir arrested and transferred to The Hague to face the 10 charges against him, including three of genocide. South African President Jacob Zuma has indicated he felt Omar al-Bashir had diplomatic immunity for his visit because he was invited by the African Union. Nicolo Figa-Talamanca is an international justice expert with no peace without justice. The gravest damage really to South Africa in the issue of non-compliance is uh, not only and not so much the violation of the ICC statute, but the fact that they did so in express violation of its own national um, judiciary orders. If the ICC eventually finds South Africa has been non-compliant, it can refer the country to the UN Security Council, which could seriously weaken South Africa's political power at the UN. This complex situation between the International Criminal Court and South Africa is unlikely to be resolved for many, many months yet. And in the meantime, the relationship between the court and the African continent is only likely to suffer. Jack Parrick, Brussels. The president of the current session of the General Assembly says his office is ready to cooperate with U.S. authorities who have charged his predecessor with bribery. John Ash, who is a former U.N. ambassador from Antigua and Barbuda and president of the 68th session of the General Assembly, was arrested at his upstate New York home and faces felony charges along with five others, including a deputy U.N. ambassador from the Dominican Republic and a Chinese billionaire. Ash could face six years in prison if convicted on two counts of under-reporting his earnings. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The current GA president, Mogens Lickentoft, says he was unaware of the investigation but stood ready to cooperate with U.S. authorities. I'm certainly, I'm shocked about it and I think the United Nations and 
its representatives should be held to the highest standards of transparency and ethics. The federal complaint charges that Ash took $1.3 million to influence business decisions at the UN and his home country of Antigua, including introducing a UN document in support of a multi-billion dollar UN-sponsored conference center in Macau, China, at the behest of those paying the bribes. John Ash, the 68th president of the UN General Assembly. Priyat Bharara is the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Today's charges will confirm that the cancer of corruption that plagues too many local and state governments infects the United Nations as well. As alleged, for Rolex watches, bespoke suits, and a private basketball court, John Ash, the 68th president of the UN General Assembly, sold himself and the global institution he led. It's alleged Ash was treated to a family vacation in New Orleans, a $30,000 basketball court at his home in New York, $59,000 worth of hand-tailored suits, two Rolex watches, among other expenditure from ill-gotten gains. The complaint also alleges that Ash himself, a U.S. permanent resident who lives in Westchester, evaded taxes on the bribes that he received. Although this case involves the high-flying world of billionaire business executives and influential UN officials. At its core, it was just a classic quid pro quo criminal scheme. Bribes paid in exchange for official actions taken. The Secretary General spokesperson Stefan Duzerik says they are not aware of a document authored by Ash to the UN chief Ban Ki-moon pushing for the Macau Conference Center to be built. Duzerik says they're ready to cooperate. Corruption is not business as usual at the UN. Second of all, we have not, we had not been uh, informed of the investigation uh, by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Our Office for Legal Affairs and other senior officials were not aware of the case until uh, it was read about in the press. Obviously, if we're contact, contacted by the relevant U.S. relevant U.S. authorities, uh, we will cooperate with them. The U.S. prosecutors also indicated that the investigation was widening and that more arrests were likely. The complaint says Ash, who is a lawful permanent resident of the United States, allegedly paid a portion of the bribe payments to the Prime Minister of Antigua. The bribery unfolded between 2011 and 2014, which included Ash's presidency of the General Assembly. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka na Unai. The leader of Lesotho's opposition, Basutu National Party, BNP, Tiseli Maseribani, says he was in a meeting with former Prime Minister Tom Tabane when he personally told Lieutenant General Dadika Modi that he was removing him three days before the 30th of August. Maseribani contradicted Gamodi, who maintains he didn't know he was removed last August. He was testifying at the SADC Commission investigating the death a former army commander, Maparangwe Mahao, in Tabanchu in South Africa's Free State Province. For the first time since the commission started hearings in South Africa, the venue was filled to capacity with party supporters dressed in BNP and ABC party regalia. Ntakwa Nangatane has more. 
Chief Tesele Masiribani is the leader of Lesotho opposition party, the Basotho National Party, BNP. Masiribani went into a coalition with former Prime Minister Tom Tabani's Obasotho Convention, ABC, and then and now Deputy Prime Minister Mutejwa Metzing's Lesotho Congress for Democracy, LCD. In his testimony to the commission, Metzing portrayed Masiribani as the troublesome leader of the youth that led the 1998 uprising in Lesotho, who was also fingered by a commission of inquiry following those riots. Masiribani set the record straight. <laughs> and having uh, the death of the Lieutenant General uh, the torture of uh, the soldiers in the manner in which they were beaten. Indeed, all in our power to remove Lieutenant General Kamu, <coughs> the person who reappointed him. I will postpone it for such a person. If a person has lived uh, the elections, just like in 1998, Mezing also portrayed Tabane as a leader who acted unilaterally or under pressure from the youth within his party at the expense of his coalition partners. But Masiribani says Mezing was the troublemaker in their coalition. He says the fallout led to petty altercations of their bodyguards. We were at a, a feast and the three of us uh, were given gifts. But uh, I was embarrassed, uh, my lord, when my bodyguard uh, called me. And when I got there, and uh, Mr. Metzing's bodyguard uh, uh, holding a ship. I, I, saw, I saw the ship when it was given to me, and I, I could identify it. Masiribani says Army Commander Tladika Mudi has been the puppet master behind Mezing's deeds and all the instability in Lesotho. He says Kamudi also wanted to topple Tabani and even tried to prevent other people from meeting him. Prime Minister, the Prime Minister wants me to establish the reasons for uh, uh, blocking the uh, police commissioner from entering the State House without having informed him first. It was not a, a very good discussion, a pleasant discussion, because I ended up using uh, words to say if you want to topple government, you can do so and do what you, what you so wish to do. You lock the gates. Kamudi has maintained that he didn't know that Tabani had removed him as commander until someone told him it was announced in the media. Masiribani says Tabani called a meeting with him and Kamudi, where he personally told Kamudi that he was removing him. And that report by Ntakwa Nangatane. It is 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Onelin Zinzi. Somalia's extremist rebels have vowed violence against British troops set to deploy to Somalia. Burkina Faso's ex-Kompare minister, General Gilbert Dindera, is charged over failed coup and the peace process in Mali reported to be back on track. Channel Africa News, I'm on Lenzinzi.
Thank you, Onele. Kenya and Tanzania have agreed to scale up cooperation in the war against terrorism, drug trafficking and poaching. Speaking in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, during a three-day state visit to Kenya, the outgoing Tanzanian President Jakaya Kikwete affirmed the commitment of the two countries in curbing the vices as both countries forge closer ties in trade, investment and economic development. Mwaiki Konyo reports from Nairobi. Speaking during bilateral talks in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, President Kenyatta of Kenya and the outgoing Tanzanian leader, Jakaya Kikwete, affirmed their commitment in curbing terror activities in the region, drug trafficking, poaching, and other global issues. President Uhuru Kenyatta. As neighbors with strong bonds of friendship, our two countries must continue to work together in a coordinated manner in the fight against terrorism. Your country has in the past suffered just like Kenya in the hands of these merciless individuals and we must use the strongest possible action to stop the unnecessary violence threatens the safety, security and prosperity of our people. Elephant and rhino poaching has become a big concern in East Africa affecting tourism which is a key foreign exchange earner. Drug trafficking is also a growing concern in East Africa for following recent seizures. The region is largely a transit point to other parts of Africa and beyond. On the question of terrorism in the region, the Tanzanian leader said both countries have been working together to curb the menace. It is a big threat in the region due to active cells by Somali's al-Shabaab militants. President Jakaya Kikwete of Tanzania. We have not only grieved with the Kenyan people, whenever there was a terrorist attack and fatal fatalities happened. But we have supported Kenya's efforts in the fight against terrorism. Our intelligence services, our police forces have been working closely. They've been sharing information, sharing intelligence, and arrest, arrested suspected terrorists who flee to Tanzania after committing crimes in Kenya. And addressing the joint session of Kenyan Parliament and the Senate, President Jakaki Kwete of Tanzania assured Kenyans that Tanzania's policy towards Kenya would not change even after he vacates office later this month. He said Kenya was a friend and a strong ally of Tanzania. Kenya is a great friend of Tanzania and an ally. Our political and diplomatic relations are strong. We see eye to eye on many bilateral, regional, continental and global issues. We've been working together very well, very closely and supported each other at regional, continental and global fora. We've also supported each other at the bilateral level. To me and to Tanzanians, Kenya's problems are our problems. It is in this spirit that after the, after the, the sad events, after the elections in 2007, I did not wait to be invited. I came to lend a hand, helping hand to relatives. The visit by the Tanzanian leader to Kenya coincides with the new session of the East African Legislative Assembly in Nairobi. It is usually held in Arusha, Tanzania. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Global artists to support Radio Everyone, a global pop-up radio station to tell everyone about the global goals. It's time to change the world. Seven-day pop-up, a global radio station streaming online with the broadcaster partners in over 60 countries, producing and hosting content on their platforms across the week. Harnessing the world's most accessible medium, Radio Everyone will bring together stations of all sizes across the world, including broadcasters in Africa, Europe, the USA, India, and 
with huge support from major broadcasters already. Radio Everyone is calling for more involvement from radio stations around the world in order to help reach the campaign's ambitious target of telling 7 billion people in seven days about the goals. This is Chris from Coldplay. I'm Cody Simpson. This is Lisa Armstrong of Samantha Christopher. This is Liam Neeson. I'm the actress Michelle Yeoh. This is Gilberto Gilles. Please, can we just have one minute of your time? A minute of your time. A minute of your time. By joining together, and saying these credible goals. Let's be serious about them. Let's get involved. That very privileged perspective of being able to look down on our planet from space really made me think of the global goals for sustainable development. You're listening to Radio Arrow. We will live in a world where our industries and our best innovations are not just used to make money, but to make all our lives better. For more information, go to globalgoals.org. This is Radio Everyone. Seven-day pop-up radio station. You can find on globalgoals.org. Globalgoals.org. Let's get to work. A station for the UN's global goal. Let's make it happen. Help us tell everyone. Tell everyone. Please help us tell everyone. You are listening to Radio Everyone. Radio Everyone. Help us tell everyone. Tell everyone. Radio Everyone. Thank you so much. It is 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1999. Dimitri Tafandes, murderer of South African Prime Minister Hendrik Ethervoet in 1966, died at the age of 81 at the Sturkfontein Psychiatric Hospital on the West Rand. Dimitri Tafandes, parliamentary messenger, was declared schizophrenic three months before he knifed to death Prime Minister Vervoet. That was today in history in 1999. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, The Congolese diaspora investing in the Democratic Republic of Congo has expressed concerns over the state of the country's hotel industry. Hotel managers and other stakeholders have called on the DRC government to put measures in place to improve the situation in the industry. Januel Bamweze reports from the capital, Kinshasa. There are so many the Congolese citizens living abroad who have chosen to invest in the hotel industry here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Most of them have their hotels here in the country's capital city, Kinshasa, but there are some others who are conducting the same business in other provinces, depending on where they feel it is and safe. What they find more strange is the way the hotel business is being disturbed here. They have denounced a lot of disorder the industry is facing and believe this might kill the business if nothing is done as soon as possible. Fraudulent taxes and disloyal competition are among the challenges those investors from the Congolese diaspora are experiencing here. One of the leaders is a Congolese living in the UK, Alpha Kia Konsingi. We are facing a lot of uh, trouble about uh, the hostel business. We're doing in Kinshasa as a member of the diaspora coming over here in DRC uh, Congo to uh, invest as a um, national Congolese 
but uh, we are facing a lot of uh, problems about uh, too many taxes we're paying, about the fraudless tax, which is um, some of the agents are coming to ask us. And then um, also there's a lot of people, uh, they live in Europe. When they come back here in DRC, they build a house, but uh, without uh, registering themselves into the States as a hostel business, they start renting their places to the people, which is to risk. And also the government, they are losing a lot of money, a lot of taxes. So the kind of people, those people, they are hiding, they are renting their room, their houses. We don't have this kind of people. That's indeed a reality, especially here in the capital city, Kinshasa, where a lot of people are illegally conducting such a business. A significant number of hotels is exploited in that way. Most of hotel managers believe it's not so complicated to get back the situation under control since this is killing the industry. They say they are ready to help the government tracing such a kind of people. And according to Alpha Kia Konsinki, the Congolese Minister of Tourism should take the matter into consideration and fight all these challenges. That's why we really send this message or the challenge to the government to tackle to trace all these people doing this kind of business because uh, it's killing the industry. That's why we are um, complaining, complaining about this as uh, one of the, uh, the leaders of the, all the hotel managers as we're getting oh, everybody in these businesses. That's why we really ha asking you, please, like uh, the uh, tourism minister, will you contact us so that we can help to make all this uh, investigation to track down all these people doing this kind of business because uh, this is killing the industry. Some of the investors we have spoken to expressed the concerns about the situation and called on the government to put more control into the industry for it to survive. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Let's go back in time to today in the year 2005. Egyptian Mohammed Al-Baradei and his International Atomic Energy Agency win the Nobel Peace Prize. And that was today in history in the year 2005. Africa, rise and shine. The city of Cape Town in South Africa has announced plans to honor Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu and his wife Leah ahead of his 84th birthday today. Mayor Patricia DeLille says activities include a reconciliation walk, an interfaith service and a council speech. DeLille says they'll also officially hand over a 200-year-old building next week donated to preserve the work of the Tutu Legacy Foundation. Tandiswamau reports. Dalil says the city of Cape Town wants to celebrate Dudu's legacy. She says the arch, as he's affectionately known, will be honored as a principled leader. She says his legacy will be preserved in the historic old granary in the CBD. It used to be an old jail. It used to where women were sentenced to death. It used to be the offices of the old governor of 100 years ago. And so that big building we have donated as the city of Cape Town to the Archbishop, where we're going to house his legacy. We want to build like a peace center together with the, the family. And so the city will be spending about 30 million rand to renovate that building. Dudu was admitted to hospital three times this year due to a persistent infection. 
His daughter, Reverend Mpotutu, says her father may be able to attend some of the activities planned by the city. His recovery has been a slow process, but he does get better each day. And we hope that he will participate in as much as he is able to. As I keep reminding him and the rest of us, he is now heading on 84, not 48. Um, So things go a little bit more slowly and he might not make it to the last hour of the concert if it ends after 3 o'clock in the morning. The city of Cape Town has called on its residents to also promote peace and reconciliation like Dudu. Public protector Tulima Donsela will also deliver the fifth Desmond Dudu Peace Lecture at the University of the Western Cape this evening. I'm Tandiswamawi in Cape Town. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's go back in time to today in 1970. Rather, today in 1981, Egypt's Vice President Hosni Mubarak is nominated as successor to slain President Anwar Sadat. That was today in history in the year 1981. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Thanks, Lulu. Following the enactment of the Controversial Economic Empowerment and Indigenization Act in 2007, confidence slumped in foreign-owned companies in Zimbabwe. The law entails that foreign-owned companies remit 51% stake to local banks as an empowerment drive. However, no clear strategy was in place as to how funds to buy the 51% would be raised, resulting in investment suffering. South Africa's largest trade federation, Kasatu, says it intends shutting down the city of Cape Town today during a protest march in Parliament. The march is intended to address the problems faced by workers. Kosatu, Western Cape Secretary Tony Ehrenreich, says they are expecting to be joined by members from the clothing sector, public service, security industries and others. Kusatu in the Western Cape will be taking part in the national strike of Kusatu that is focusing on public transport, the taxation policy and the defense of jobs of all workers. The strike action will be commenced with a march at 10 o'clock in Cape Town to Parliament where we'll hand over a memorandum. South Africa's Reserve Bank Governor Lesecha Khanyaho says that their economy, while weak, will not go into recession this year. He says expectations are that inflation will be temporarily outside of the bank's range to three 
uh, of 3 to 6% next year. Khanyakho cites the decline in the rand electricity prices and high wage agreements as inflation risks. Marisa Simowis has more. Inflation is expected to end the year at an average of 4.4%. However, Kanyaho says expected higher inflation is not expected to affect the Reserve Bank's monetary policy, so interest rates should not rise in the first quarter of next year. Economic prospects have been hit by lower growth forecasts and a drop in business confidence this week. Marisa Samos, SABC News, Johannesburg. Sanlem Namibia, a 0.9% shareholder in First National Bank Namibia, has dedicated its profits from investments to its clients. Sanlem Namibia, which builds its wealth by collecting the savings of ordinary citizens and investing them in ventures that show healthy financial returns, has pocketed more money this year. The life insurance company's general manager for public and corporate support, Evan Simata, said the company's immediate priority as a business for this capital to be sufficient to cover payments to its members as their policies mature, whether on retirement, disability, accident or death. The Africa Development Bank will strengthen alliances at the 2015 World Bank and International Monetary Fund annual meetings. The annual meetings will this year be held from October the 9th to 11 in Lima, Peru. This is contained in a statement posted on the AFDB website. The World Bank and IMF annual and spring meetings bring together each other each year and central bank ministers, finance ministers, heads of development finance institutions and private sector sectors to discuss current issues that are of relevance to the world economy, financial stability and economic development. The US dollar trades at 360 in South Africa, 10.36 in Botswana, 12.15 in Zambia, 0.65 to the British pound, 0.89 to the euro, Gold won one four eight dollars, platinum nine three seven dollars an ounce, brand crude five two dollars, four zero cents a barrel. For Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabiso. Now, Figure Lingwati's prediction for today's Springbok match against the USA is 30? 10. 30, 10. Mario? I said 36. 12. Something like that. And I say it has to be above 40. Give us an update, Figure In our sports update this hour, South Sudan will make their World Cup debut on Wednesday at the start of Africa's campaign to find five teams to represent the continent at the World Cup in Russia in 2018. The preliminaries involving 53 of the 54 African football-playing countries begin on the holiday island of Mahi on Wednesday afternoon when the Seychelles, the continent's smallest nation, host Burundi in the first leg of the knockout trial. Juba, capital of the world's youngest country, will mark its first World Cup game just over an hour later when South Sudan, who last month recorded a first victory in a competitive international when they beat Equatorial Guinea in an African Nations Cup qualifier, host Mauritania in the first leg of their tie. 
Also Wednesday, Mauritius hosts Kenya in Bellevue and Tanzania take on neighbors Malawi in Dar es Salaam. And France Beckenbauer has backed Tokyo Sikhwale as a possible candidate for the FIFA presidency to succeed Seb Blatter and says the South African can expect support from the German Football Association. Speaking at the annual Camp Beckenbauer Sports Conference in Kitzbühel, Austria, the Kaiser says the German Football Association know about the quality of South Africans and the quality of Tokyo Sikhwale. The 62-year-old Sikhwale has yet to announce whether he will oppose Blatter at next February's re-election for the FIFA presidency and has until the 26th of October to decide. The former anti-apartheid activist who was an inmate alongside former South African President Nelson Mandela on Robben Island is a guest at the Camp Beckenbauer event and is considering opposing Blatter. In rugby news, Springbok captain Faf or Fori Dupru rather, has admitted that his team is still under immense pressure as they prepare to face the USA in the final Rugby World Cup Pool B match at the London's Olympic Stadium on Wednesday. The Springboks held their traditional captain's run at the match venue on Tuesday afternoon, a mere three days after their last test on Saturday in Newcastle against Scotland. That's according to South African Rugby Union website. The pressure is still on. If we don't win tomorrow, we're out of the tournament. So we, we, we put that pressure on ourselves as well. Um, at least now we know the way we want to sort of the way we want to go, what's successful for us, and then just taking that a notch notch further. So the guys are in, in, in a still in that sort of desperation mood, and um, hopefully after tomorrow we can relax a few days and, and then focus for the next stage. But only focus now is on, on tomorrow. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. And in cricket news, the West Indies cricket team have arrived in Sri Lanka without head coach Phil Simons, who has been suspended following criticism he made of the team selection. Simons questioned the non-inclusion of all-rounders Dwayne Bravo and Kiron Pollard from the one-day squad Comments which led to the West Indies cricket board suspending Simons and replacing him with a member of the selection panel, Eldin Batiste. The upcoming series is two test matches, three one-day internationals and two T20 games. West Indies captain Jason Holder says he would love to have Bravo back in the team. It's a bit of a setback for us, you know, but at this present stage, all we can do is focus on cricket. You know, we need to control what we can and that's just going out there and playing good cricket. Um, I just hope that the situation with him, you know, is solved and solved quickly because we would love to have him back. He's been a wonderful um, inspiration to our team, our team just thus far. And again, it's just up to the, uh, up to us playing the cricket. Um, I think the cricket is the only thing that we can control at this present time. And we, again, it's a very young group, and a lot of guys looking to to make their mark into Test cricket. So I think it's a stepping stone for them just to focus in and narrow in on this particular series. Sri Lankan captain Angelo Matthews is looking for improved fortunes after his side lost back-to-back test series at home to Pakistan and India. But the absence of big-hitting Chris Gale from the West Indies team has helped lift his spirits. Well, as we all know, Chris is a massive player for the, the Indies and, and he's performed so well over the past so many years. Uh, it's going to be a great loss, but I think you know we can't be complacent uh, against the Indies because you know, you know they can beat any team any day. So we just have to, um, um, you know, play very good cricket to beat uh, the Windies.
That's your sport news this hour. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Let's do this. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan rebels condemn the creation of 28 new states, the International Criminal Court receives submissions from South Africa, and former UN General Assembly President faces corruption charges. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour, or rather, on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Andy Brown from Zimbabwe with a song titled Takura.